0: Radio Drome. Welcome to another lovely episode of Radio Drome. Brad and Brian are off being Brad and Brian again. I think they're like going to a con or something. They're going to some nerd convention. So this week I have on our semi-regular guest, Mike White of the Projection Booth. Hello. And then we also have dredging the the depths of the internet, Charlie McMullen from Geek Juice. And
1: what depths they are.
0: So you guys have both been on before, but never together. So this is a first time for the two of you. So be gentle with each other.
1: So we can finally put to bed those rumors that we're actually the same person. I know. I'm sick of getting your mail.
0: Are those rumors or conspiracy theories? I'm not sure what the difference is. Depends entirely on the context. Well, speaking of conspiracy theories, what actually got me to think about this to the topic tonight, I found a bunch of old UFO conspiracy nut magazines from the 1970s. So I wanted to talk to you guys about magazines, what happened, specifically entertainment magazines. Let me ask you first, Mike, since you ran a magazine, and I know you're deeply rooted in this community. Do you think the magazine, and I'm talking print magazine, is dying, is dead, or you think it's just sort of at a lower level? Where do you see it right now?
1: Yeah, definitely there have been a lot of deaths, but I, you know, there are still some that are Out there hanging on, and I think they will for quite a while. Um, I don't think that there's going to be the breath of zines that there were ever again. I think that time has passed, and as far as magazines, I think that time has pretty much passed, Um, and I think that the ones that are remaining will probably carry on for a little while longer, but I think that they might eventually phase out kind of sad to say but i think that um I, i think that magazine racks are probably going to continue to get smaller but i think the big kill off of magazines has already occurred
0: so it's sort of like we had we had the culling and now we've got the stronger pieces that rose to the top
1: I I don't know about stronger. I wouldn't necessarily consider the ones that are left to be stronger. I think they have uh, watered themselves down, or at least a lot of them have. I mean, there are... Definitely some that are holding true to their ideals. Um, you know, I I'm think there's definitely uh, quite a few camps out there. I'm, I'm thinking of stuff like, you know, Empire, and then there's Paris Cinema. So, you know, and then there are the ones like, you know, Famous Monsters of Filmland. So you're, you're looking at quite a few different breeds uh, of magazines that are out there right now. I see a death in progress, at least in terms of actual... Tangible
2: print magazines, which is really just not the same thing as reading anything on the internet. It just doesn't doesn't have the same feel. I'm a bit of a sensory purist. Uh, did I just make that up? I did. You're welcome, internet. But I, I definitely see a death in progress. I think the internet is largely to blame for the end of magazines as we know it.
0: I I gotta disagree with you on that. I don't think the internet is to blame for the death of magazines. I think the magazines and the publishers are to blame for their own death for refusing to see what the internet is doing and counter it. That's
2: also a very good point.
0: Because one of my problems is you've got a magazine such as Fangoria, just as an example. They have not changed their business model. With the internet giving us information Right away, as soon as a new star is revealed or the new trailer comes out for a new movie, boom, it's all over the blogs. It's going to be a month to a month and a half before it's in that magazine. Why do they still carry movie news in these magazines and waste pages on it? By the time you read it, it's already two months old. That arch refusal to change how the magazine is formatted.
1: I still get a lot of my news from things like Entertainment Weekly, I, I don't know if I just don't tune into the right blogs and Twitter feeds and all that kind of stuff. I guess because there's such an echo chamber as far as, you know, you, you read something on one site, you read it on a hundred. So in order to tune that out, I just try not to read a whole lot of movie sites. So because I have yet to find one that is the proper level of snarkiness that I can handle. I I just yeah I, I have yet to find one where it's like you know I'll go to like Quiet Earth US or something like that and generally because it's a nice. Subset of movie news, and they don't try to do everything to, and try to be all things to all people. So, like you know, there are others where I just try to stay away from them. So I still actually really look forward to getting the new Entertainment Weekly every Friday or Saturday and seeing what kind of deals have been made and just uh, enjoying my my news that way. I get most of my news from
2: TV because uh, my internet usage is usually limited to listening to our podcasts. And, uh, porn. And as you know, that's, that's a pretty full day. Um, so I don't usually go to a lot of movie sites just in general. If I, uh, like if somebody links me an article and says, you got to check this out, then I'll go. But I, I used to go to movie sites a lot like, uh, Rotten Tomatoes, which I think would have made a great magazine. And I would get into these comment wars with reviewers, which, uh, while fun took up like a pathetic amount of my time. So I don't don't think movie websites are an adequate substitute for movie magazines.
0: I I think, no, not for a magazine in general. I mean for the news aspect. I mean for all of a sudden when Fangoria, breaking news, you know, first pics of of the new Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3D that have been online for four weeks already. Just kind of doesn't have the same effect it did in 1988, does it? No, it definitely doesn't have the same effect. And, I mean, there's an
2: obvious advantage just in terms of getting content available for public viewing fastest you don't have to start printing presses and buy ink to post something online i don't know it just seems less rewarding to read it online because plus you can't really put too much faith in in the credibility of everything you see online i have to see something two or three times to make sure it's not a hoax because i spent a lot of time this past weekend thinking morgan freeman was dead and i'm just not ready to be hurt like that again
0: but then you also have and this is something i saw Especially when the, dark, the new Dark Shadows movie came out. All the magazines look like all the other magazines. I'm specifically looking at the horror and movie magazines. Horrorhound, Hound, Room Org, Diabolique, Fangoria, Empire, and SFX all had a picture of Johnny Depp from the new Dark Shadows movie on the cover the same month. They all looked exactly the same. It was almost the same photo. How are you supposed to compete when you look like everyone else? I would have liked to have seen the magazine that month that said, we're not going to put Dark Shadows on the cover. We're going to put out some other movie that happens to be coming out that same month. We're going to make the cover that because we know all our competitors are going to put Johnny Depp on the cover. Or am I just ignorant in the way the magazine business operates to think that's the way
1: I would do it? can see that you want to put the most popular thing on the cover in order to sell stuff and maybe to get the audience that normally wouldn't go for it. I mean, personally, I would go for the movie that I felt strongest about uh, as far as you know story and being a compelling watch. Um, just seeing the preview for Dark Shadows made me not want to see it, and I would try to stay definitely clear of that, and I would be kind of ashamed to put that on the cover of my magazine if I were some sort of self-respecting horror magazine, but you know, you're also you're looking to sell product and that's that's really where we it all boils down to.
2: I don't think you're being ignorant. I think you're being idealistic. I uh, I think True. that's something I think that's something that we all do from time to time. I mean there there's the the sites that put themselves apart from every other possible site that the average person can go to they need to figure out a better way to uh, set themselves apart magazines had a better way to do that magazines had reputations you know like if you read fangoria they're going to have bloodier pictures than entertainment weekly because entertainment weekly their advertisers are more corporate more uh i, I guess uh, bottom line oriented than fangoria's
0: I, I, th- uh, I think mass audience oriented
2: yeah exactly and uh i think i think there there's no way for for websites to to differentiate themselves from each other like that.
1: I appreciate the magazines that kind of live in their own worlds and can be supported by their own subscribers, by their own means, you know, something like a, a film comment or a Cineast or um, what's the one CinemaScope from Canada or wide angle. Some of these where it's much more niche in their subject matter i mean of course they're all dealing with film but they all deal with them on their own levels and really aren't beholden necessarily to more of a you know a a corporate sponsor i mean or at least a kind of a more mass audience corporate sponsor i guess Uh, you know you're looking at definitely having advertisers in there but it's not necessarily the same game that an entertainment weekly or even a fangoria are playing and that way they can get deeper into their news and do their things, but also they're probably selling, you know, just a a minuscule fraction that these other magazines are selling but that's fine I'm glad they're still there and I'm glad I'm able to read them and they're the magazines that really to me are you know pushing the boundary of film criticism and looking at things in a much different way than this kind of real glossy you know give me a hundred words about this and give me two hundred words about that and you know these kind of more you know I just want to look at pretty pictures of you know what Sherry Moon Zombie is going to look like in the next rob zombie film
0: along that same lines of what you just brought up there is also the willingness to bite the hand that feeds you which is something you don't see very often nowadays now i'm going to butcher this magazine's name mike charlie i need you guys to help me is it cinema fastique is that how that magazine used to be pronounced
2: i i thought it was uh, like cinema festivique
1: I, I, it's so funny because I was just talking to Paul Salmon the other day and he used to write for this and he was very particular in the way that he pronounced it. (laughs) Um, it was, uh, I don't remember the, the first part, I believe it's just cinema. And, but the last part for sure, it was very, uh, fantastic.
0: Okay. Well, that magazine, (laughs) that magazine used to, I loved that magazine. That was a non-advertiser supported magazine. It had a higher cover price, but you got all content. Instead of Fangoria, where every third page would be you know, a VHS ad or, or something like that, it was all content on every page, and you got what you paid for. The fact that they were not beholden to any advertiser meant they were the true source of film journalism in the 80s, and that killed them. A lot of times when you found out about these behind-the-scenes shenanigans, such as Harlan Ellison's lawsuit against James Cameron things like that, and you you found out about actors walking off sets and disastrous shoots and things like that, they were the ones that broke that. And then they stopped getting invitations to preview screenings and they were barred from visiting sets And because the studio said, these guys are going to tell the truth about us. I don't want them writing about us. So in a way, being true and not beholden to the advertisers cuts you off from the information that your competitors have. Until they change that later on in their run. But is it a good thing or a bad thing that they held to their morals as long as they did and said, we're going to write true about these movies, whether the studios like it or not?
2: I think it's a bad thing for a number of different reasons. Entertainment Weekly, while occasionally will have a really good story, is uh, for the most part the worst offender pandering to their to their sponsors really i mean it got to a certain point where they don't even care about their readership anymore they only care about making their sponsors happy that is a bad thing but also especially within the hollywood system this obsessive and i will say it childish need for secrecy is ruining the reporting like the the reporters are all hamstrung like in terms of what can be published and what can't be published that leaves the readership to get nothing but puff pieces they have to go to the internet for any actual information
1: When it comes to the Internet and when it comes to too much quote-unquote journalism, I mean, there are too many times where somebody sees something printed and doesn't do the the actual fact-checking or or anything, and you just see the same misinformation being printed over and over and over again, and it just gets to the point where it's so sickening. And when you have to – when you actually – go out and do the legwork and find out what it is. We find out what the real story is. I mean, that really become a footnote at some point, but the, you know, the the lie that has been told so many times becomes the truth. You know, it's the whole citizen Kane kind of thing, right? But um I am sorry, I'm going really um completely went, off uh, point uh, with uh, that.
0: Film student with us right there with Citizen Kane. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I actually got uh,
2: flashbacks. That was nice.
1: <laughs> I will say that it's it was nice that Cinema Fantastique would do their own thing and not be beholden to the advertisers because there are some magazines out there where you can't necessarily tell what an ad is and what the article is next to it. And I'm not talking about poor layout. I mean, I, one reason I quit reading Giant Robot was because I couldn't tell with the layout anymore uh, what was an ad and what was an article. But there are too many times where, you know, you see a ad for something and you know two pages later or 20 pages later there's going to be a a glowing review of whatever this movie is that you just saw advertised and that to me kind of turns my stomach
0: well how about and fangoria was guilty of this for the longest time i haven't read the magazine in a couple of years so i don't know if the new editorship has changed this or not they would give all these you know glowing eight page spreads to to the new slasher movie to the new eli roth movie talking about how great it's going to be and blah blah and then they would go and trash it in the reviews in the back of the magazine is that good that you've you've got the two different points of view? Or is that sort of, we want the exclusive photos, but we can't give this piece of shit a glowing review. We just can't.
1: I used to get really upset with magazines. like I, Some of the incarnations of Film Threat would really kind of turn me off as far as having the different reviewers be so radically different and it was like can we please just take a stand can we say like you know this movie is good or bad or somewhere in between rather than having this kind of you know on page one it's the best movie in the world and on page 13 it's the worst movie in the world if that's the case let's take these two reviewers and give them a good point counterpoint kind of review type of thing where and i I enjoy that kind of debate but having you know two different points of view so many pages apart just was a little like schizophrenic almost and it was like can we please just have some sort of narrative or editorial voice here that's going to assure that you know we're, we're reading kind of the same theme throughout the entire magazine or you know there's always the uh you know i think film threat was also guilty of this as far as we're going to give this thing a cover story in one up, ep- one issue, and then two issues later, this was the worst piece of crap in the world. So they had at least a couple issues in between there, rather than you know the Eli Roth expose on on page 20 and then page 80 having the the blurb review talking about how awful it is. Well, I was going to ask uh, Mike this in preparation for tonight's show. Uh, Mike, what would you say film threats' heyday was? Um, gosh, for me, it was probably when they first moved out to L.A. I thought that they were really kind of doing that great snotty kid kind of thing and were really kind of biting the hand that feeds them. Um, I, I enjoyed that they they didn't hold anything sacred.
0: Would that be the end of the Chris Gore era or the beginning of the Larry Flint era? Because I personally loved maybe the last five or six issues of when Chris Gore was running it himself. But before they they moved to Larry Flint publications.
1: I definitely enjoyed Gore's voice being a uh, much bigger part of the magazine. I would say probably somewhere in that transition is where I found it to be kind of a golden age.
2: I I would more or less uh, agree with that. I think uh, – because I was a subscriber to Film Threat for a number of years, uh, probably the only one in the town that I grew up in that had ever heard of Film Threat. But I remember uh, in the early to mid-90s, like 92 to 94, it got really good because everybody was taking shots at Rob Weiss, and deservedly so because that guy was a complete tool. But I used to just really like reading reporting like that, like not afraid to offend anybody and now it's like what Josh was saying—they'll—they'll they'll kiss Eli Roth's ass on <laughs> and at the head of the magazine, and then trash his movie. I mean, that does something to affect the credibility of the magazine in total for me.
0: But see, Film Threat did one thing that I thought was brilliant, and I think something like Entertainment Weekly would probably gain readership if they did, and I don't think it would cost them readership. Yes, you can have Twilight on the cover, you can have the Avengers on the cover, but like what Film Threat did is they would have Batman on the cover, they'd have Natural Born Killers on the cover, Quentin Tarantino on the cover, and then they'd be talking about Cannibal Holocaust in the the last third of the magazine. So you'd get the hardcore exploitation fans, and you'd get the mainstream audience both buying the same magazine.
2: Sort of a bait-and-switch.
0: Yeah, we're, and I thought that that was brilliant on Chris Gore's level to put them, you know, put Macaulay Culkin on the cover and then talk about the Italian cannibal music, therefore exposing it to people who would never have bought an issue of, of the old film threat. And I think Entertainment Weekly would be good to do that, to have more obscure reviews in the back. Maybe devote ten pages of the magazine to that and then you can have all the Joss Whedon love in the front of the magazine. You'd get both worlds. But someone like Entertainment Weekly, their editor says, no, we're mainstream and that's all we are. I think that is going to be – that mindset is what's going to kill these magazines, not willing to kind of tease both audiences.
1: I do think that Entertainment Weekly has definitely gone way downhill over the last two years, maybe a little bit more. Um, There used to be kind of more of that – Attitude and more of that um, idea that was going on. I mean, if it wasn't necessarily a conscious thing, at least I was getting a little bit more out of the magazine than I, I do now. Um, there used to be, you know, reviews or you know, kind of retrospectives of different people, you know, different actors or different, you know, oh here, let's look at uh, you know this subgenre and and kind of you know take this apart, you know, just something interesting. And now it's like I can read the magazine pretty darn quickly. I mean, I will go through the deal report, which is what I was talking about before as far as getting my my news from that. And, you know, the, the deaths and the marriages and all those kind of things just kind of keeping up. Uh, though whenever I say, oh, this is interesting, so-and-so got married or so-and-so died or so-and-so is getting sued. My wife who reads Yahoo News is always like, oh, yeah, I knew about that a couple days ago. It's like, oh. All right. (laughs) That's what I
0: was talking about.
1: Exactly. (laughs) But it's not anything critical for me. So it's like, oh, hey, uh, you know, this celebrity had a a kid and is marred it for life with a horrible name. You know, so I just get all of those all at once.
2: Debate and Switch is good, but I would like for it to be more than that. I would like for Entertainment Weekly to have not even a whole uh, like they don't have to change their whole format, but just like add a section. Uh, with some off the radar stuff. I mean that would, it would definitely increase readership. It would it would be thought provoking, which is probably why they won't do it. Um, but I don't think that's going to happen because there's just no way around, you know, getting that approved by again by sponsors that just don't want to hear any of that.
0: Okay. Well, what about grabbing someone with a cover right away? Especially in the internet age, you need a good looking cover. Going back to cinema festique. <laughs> They, they used to always, well, not always, probably 90% of the time from their inception through about uh, 1997, 1998, they had an original painting for the cover. Every now and then they'd have a photo cover of like George Romero or something if it was a special issue. But most of the time it was a painting. Then for whatever reason, they decided, let's just put Jennifer, a picture of Jennifer Garner or Fox Mulder on the cover. And it, to me, started looking like every other magazine. Horror Hound still does this. They have a painting on almost every cover. Then you've got the ones like like SFX and Empire and Fangoria that just take some stock photograph of some big movie. I mean, it was funny. When Cowboys vs. Aliens came out, Total Film, Empire, and SFX all had the exact same photo, tinted a different color, for Cowboys vs. Aliens on the cover. It was literally the exact photo they got from the studio. And it's like, like, (laughs) all these magazines look exactly the same, other than the title. That, to me, does not make me want to buy one over the other.
2: I I did notice that when uh, Cowboys and Aliens was out. It reminded me of the time in, like, 94, 95, when Newsweek completely just threw away their entire reputation by making O.J. Blacker. I remember that one, yes. <laughs> I think the cover comes down to the bottom line. A, a magazine is going to go with whatever cover is going to get most people to pick it up off the newsstand. I, I think in a perfect world, an original painting, like a really eye-catching one, like maybe like a Tom, even like a Tom Savini sketch, if you want. In a perfect world, that would get the most people, but it's going to be a big celebrity photo that's going to get most people to pick it up off the newsstand.
1: You know that the cover of Cashiers to Cinema was, uh, I think we had one photo. I mean, the very first couple. Issues were photos and then uh, started to get original paintings from Nathan Kane, And then since then, we've had other artists that have come in and done their thing. And I will say that, um, you know, I've gotten a lot of crap over the years of, uh, you know, why are you doing this? Why are you why do you have the pinup girls on the cover? And it's like, well, because I dig it. I think this is a great look. But is it going to sell magazines? Maybe, maybe not. Does it misrepresent what's inside? Maybe, maybe not, but I liked it. I thought that they looked cool, So, and that's really, I mean, that's the, the advantage that I have being a zine is that uh, I could do whatever the heck I wanted to, no matter what kind of sense it made.
0: <laughs> True. But then you've also got, like like when Fangoria, they've always had that, from like the second or third issue, that iconic logo with the Fangoria logo and then the film strip down the side with the three mini photos and then the big feature photo. And then for whatever reason, shortly after issue 200, I mean, they brought it back. But for a couple of years, they ran without that, just looking like every other magazine. I thought that was just a shockingly stupid editorial decision. Some idiot in the Fangoria office said, yeah, this has been working for 20 plus years. Just get rid of that. I I want to look like an Entertainment Weekly cover with a werewolf on the cover. I just didn't understand the getting rid of the iconic cover scheme, which then Horror Hound picked up. Horrorhound picked up that, and now Horrorhound every month looks like a Tales from the Crypt cover, and it's eye catching and your eyes go right to it, and they make you want to pick it
1: up. It, yeah, it, I do enjoy the Horrorhound covers.
2: That's that's what I used to love about Fangoria, because I was a subscriber to Fangoria for a while too, and I used to love the covers because they reminded me of comic books.
0: Well, and then you also have the thing when it comes to when it comes to these magazines is price. I mean, Fangoria is nine ninety nine an issue at least a third of the magazine is ads and i do not understand how that magazine survives with that kind of price whereas horror hound has more pages less ads and is only 6.99 an issue i can't understand in the fingery offices how they can't go why is horror hound outselling us
1: well you would be amazed at the price difference in ads too i mean i tried to take out some ads for my book a few years ago and uh, i pretty much had to laugh off quite a few of the magazines when i finally got their ad sheets and just said yeah no that's that's not going to (laughs) happen
0: but i mean do you agree that the prices are a little outrageous i mean especially if you get empire or total film or sfx one of the import magazines that you get from england some of those are 13 bucks american a piece and that's that's a little expensive for a magazine.
1: Yeah, I mean, what, Shock Cinema has been 5 $6, and Cinema is $7 with shipping. I mean, that's, you know, you're getting so many pages of great content, uh, very few ads, and, you know, beautifully laid out. You know, magazine, especially with Paris Cinema, but with Shock Cinema, my God, the thing is what, 80 pages or something? Uh, barely any ads inside of it. Every quarter you're getting this thing. And it, I, what is it? Is it $6 now or is it still $5? I mean, it's ridiculously it m- cheap. It might still be
0: $5. But, but then, ridiculous. And they're also on the cheaper paper. I think Fangoria's biggest problem is they insist on that thick, glossy paper, which. I don't this is something I've had trouble with when comic books did this too. God forbid you try and read one of those glossy pages with a light source above your head. All <laughs> you get is glare. You can't read a damn thing. Old newsprint copies? No problem. I can read those anywhere.
2: I think it would make it easier on the reader. I don't think they're gonna they're gonna abandon that format because I think it comes down to something that's literally as retarded as look, it's shiny.
0: You really think this is like NASCAR fan, big shiny objects going in circles kind of thing? Exactly.
2: That's that's jingling your keys in front of a baby. That's all it is.
0: Mike, since you're still running your own magazine, which you, in in a great lapse of logic, decided to print another thing I wrote, and you're gonna pay for that, I'm sure. What? Where do you see your magazine? Do you see cashiers to Cinemart as a real competitor, or are you are you making just an alternative
1: voice? Oh, God, no. Yeah, no, it's no competition to anybody out there. It's just, uh, it's something that I feel compelled to do and something that people still feel compelled to help me out with. I mean, it's... It's definitely changed over the years, of course. I mean, we've gone through so many different formats, and this one, I'm trying something different. It'll be kind of more of a a book, kind of more – I remember what Head Press years ago used to do kind of – theirs were really much more of a book format. They called themselves a magazine, but they were, you know, nice – Soft cover books and that's what this one I'm thinking is going to kind of look like and, and be like and it'll be kind of more of um, You know going back to my college days reading the old uh, film journals And it'll be kind of a little bit more like that like taking a bunch of essays and putting them inside of something This one is not going to have a, a magazine look to it in that we're not going to have the uh, You know photos with the text going around it and all that kind of stuff that I I usually like and that i used to like to do but um just with the way that things are now i mean the last issue kind of killed me just doing (laughs) the layout stuff and uh yeah so it's uh Definitely not any kind of competition to anybody. But then I don't know, you know, what kind of uh, there's got to be competition going on between some of the magazines that we've talked about, as far as you know, the the Rue Morgue and the Horror Hound and those kind of things. But there are so many outliers now that still just kind of, you know, they're not eating anybody's lunch, but they're just they're still going to sit at the counter.
0: What do you guys think about like Mike just brought up the whole essays something like video scope magazine that spends most of their, their magazine just reviewing current DVDs. And then you look at something like Paris Cinema and they have essays on trends in film and things like that. I think that's where the big difference is. I don't want to read about a bunch of DVDs that just came out. I don't need their reviews for that. I prefer the essay style where you're, you're looking back at, at a, at a trend or you're, 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 you're talking about something you see like the dark times coming if the Eli Ross ever get a 100 million dollar budget or something like that. Where do you fall into that?
2: Well, I wish more publishers thought the way that Mike did. Don't try to like trick people with the gimmick like don't say, "Look, we got Jennifer Lopez to be a little bit more naked on our cover than they did on theirs." I I like I like magazines that just put forth the best content that they can and let the reader decide. Uh, I think far too few people do that. But in terms of including essays and stuff like that, I I would love that. I don't think I think magazines are kind of hamstringing themselves by thinking of themselves as only a news outlet. I think uh, essays and stuff like that would be welcome. I remember in uh, Entertainment Weekly when I was – I guess I was just out of high school when I was reading this. This was like an eight-part series that came out every week. It was uh, Kevin Bacon's diary during the, the production of Hollow Man. Now, is Hollow Man an idiotic movie that I wish I had never heard of? Yes, it absolutely is. <laughs> but reading Kevin Bacon's production journal was it was riveting. I was like looking forward to it like a cliffhanger every week. It was awesome.
1: Obviously, I enjoy you know the the essay stuff, but I will say too, you know, looking at Shock Cinema, I mean that's all reviews, and uh, they kick ass. But I think the thing there is that. Hardly anything that they're reviewing is, you know, new out on DVD this week kind of stuff. It is, you know, here's this incredibly rare film that somebody has uncovered and is now for sale. And let's take a look at this thing. And I just love that. I love the rarity of the pieces that they're reviewing. And I love the attitude of the reviewers.
0: Well, speaking of attitude, and Mike, I I know you've encountered this. Charlie, I assume you have, and I know I have through friends of mine. The whole, we don't want to pay, but please write for us. And I don't mean like the way, Mike, you do it. I do it that with you because you're my friend and you're stupid enough to publish my stuff. I I mean the, the whole thing that Fangoria did a few years ago where they said, hey, do you guys want to see your reviews in print? S- send it to us on the Fangoria website, and if we like it, we'll put it in the magazine. They just got 100 new interns right there that they didn't have to pay, and they got pages to fill for absolutely no no turnout for on their end. That, to me, is both brilliant and sleazy at the same time.
2: It's, it's very brilliant and sleazy. <laughs> it's like the railroad tycoons that used to pay Chinese immigrants 10 cents a day just by virtue of the fact that there were tons of Chinese people available. I have made a total of $42 in my life as far as print work is concerned. Most of what I've done uh, has been for free. And I think there's always going to be people... Uh, like me, dumb enough to fall for that.
1: <laughs> uh, that clearly amuses Mike. <laughs> yeah, I'm well. counting on it. <laughs> no, I I know what you mean. I don't know of uh, I don't know how somebody could make a living these days off of writing for magazines. I'm sure way back in the day, when you you know you got a piece in Playboy or something, you know, and you know you're a, a Norman Mailer or Gore Vidal or somebody, you could probably make a pretty good living doing that. Um, it, but uh, um, well, yeah, I, I just read Jules Pfeiffer's biography and he was doing cartoons and it was such a big deal to make it from, you know, the Village Voice, which wasn't paying him anything into the New Yorker or into Playboy and all that. And that was, you know, getting up into the big leagues. I yeah, I, I, just with all the magazines that we've talked about so far. Uh, I'm sure that most of them don't pay very much, if anything. And I know me, I would love to pay people if I could, if I did some sort of profit sharing when it came to – you know, putting out an issue and if I said okay minus all of the costs that it is to put out this issue I will share the profits um, you know once I make back that initial investment I would probably be sending out you know two and three cent checks every six months to a few people and that's about it
0: <laughs> well because I, one thing I'm specifically thinking of I mean if the Fangoria thing was sleazy what Dark Side magazine did was downright illegal. They were caught in the early 2000s taking blog reviews and reviews of DVDs. They would change a word here, a word there, change the byline and put it in the magazine so they didn't have to pay anybody. They literally stole all their print reviews from the internet and then printed them under someone else's name. And eventually one guy noticed, there's like eight of my reviews up there, but this magazine's never paid me. (laughs) <laughs> that was downright criminal. And that the magazine collapsed for a few years. They're back now. I don't know if it's new management, if it's new upscale management or not. The last thing you want to do is fall into the trap that dark side fell into. And then Fangoria also had a thing a couple of years ago. A couple of friends of mine wrote for them. And I, I don't mean on like the, hey, we'll print your, your review thing. They wrote for them legitimately. And this was under the old management. So this might very well have changed. Their checks never cleared. And after about 40 phone calls, they could never get another check, so they just gave up. They're like, it's only 150 bucks; it's not worth all this trouble. Fangoria had a little bit of a history of not paying their writers. Should that kind of thing be exposed more, or do you think that's kind of an internal beef kind of thing, Mike?
1: Oh yeah, I definitely think it should be exposed more. I mean, especially the you know stealing of people's writing. I mean, that was such a huge thing just a few years ago when it was uh, God, what? Just like recipes that people were copying and putting out there. And I'm I'm not even talking about uh, you know the uh, uh, God, who was the, uh, the McCain lady? Yeah, just like just all the all the controversy around that. But yeah, that should definitely be brought to light. And I would hope that, you know, there would be, <laughs> this is kind of uh, backwards thinking, but I would hope that, you know, if somebody's not getting paid for writing their stuff, that the blogosphere and the Twitterverse would be a buzz with those kind of things and folks would actually know about it. I mean, it seems that it's kind of strange that the real scoop on so many magazines is actually being blogged about. You know, rather than written about (laughs)
0: the the, one of the friends of mine that didn't get paid, he was when he after he bitched about it online, they called him up and they're like, dude, this was all internal. You didn't have to go public with this." They were like offended, not that they can't send him the check for the review or for the review or the article he wrote. They were pissed. He went public with it. That's why I'm saying I think this should be exposed. I think it should definitely be exposed. Uh, One of the most interesting news stories, Damn,
2: I guess this is about like 14, 15 years ago. Uh, Let me ask you guys both this question. Do you know the name David
1: Manning? Rings a bell. Yeah, it sounds familiar, but I'm not sure who it is.
2: David Manning is a fictitious movie critic created by Sony Pictures. Oh, oh, that's
0: right. You
1: know, like, I think explosive
0: him. explosive four star review kind of thing, right?
2: Yeah, I think someone uh, was made suspicious because they gave four stars
0: to the animal with Robert Schneider. Dude, talk about overreaching. Come on. Yeah, at least try I to fool somebody. A, at least make it a realistic positive review.
2: That was yeah, that I was just that a that...
1: fantastic scandal. I was so happy about that i think that that stuff still goes on today i i have a friend of mine who was going to and i don't think he's done this yet but he was going to take all of the new york times quotes you know on any ads that were inside of the new york times just so you could have like a you know central location kind of thing and try to track down all of the review quotes that were on those ads i don't think he's ever done that but i i pretty sure that you would start to uncover some very interesting things if you were to do that on a regular basis i'm i'm convinced
2: that it's still going on i, I think the only difference is now you have actual people willing to be to say stupid things like that like peter travers well like
1: peter travers yeah
2: <laughs> <laughs> i mean if you take peter travers uh, just read the the year-end issue of rolling stone every year he, he'll call it like six movies the best movie of the year something's not right
1: There's a blog out there, I'm trying to remember, is it like Jeffrey Lyons? Uh, Oh gosh, it's a good one. It kind of really traces this whole thing and does do that. It will look at all of the, you know, this is the best movie of the year and really call out the reviewers when they um, start to, you know, kind of – Eat, eat their own, uh, eat their own hype, as far as it were, you know. And just like, okay, yeah, you said that this was the best movie of the year two weeks ago. You know, what about this? This is the best movie of the year. Which, which is it? Well,
0: that also leads into the whole Harry Knowles scandal of ain't it cool news. Oh. For those that don't know, what Harry Knowles would do is he's personal friends with John Carpenter, so he'd get like set visits to Ghosts of Mars, and he'd get you know, a full expense-paid trip to the set of Godzilla. And these movies, no matter how bad they were, they would get glowing reviews. Only the movies he got invited to the sets of. And then there were other movies where he said, hey, can I get a set visit? And they said no. No matter how good the movie was, negative review. He basically was saying, reviews for sale, reviews for sale. Come on, I'm selling. Who's buying?
2: Well, yeah, I was going to make a reference to the Emperor's
1: new clothes, but I don't want to picture Harry Knowles naked. (laughs) Oh, God. Please don't. Yeah, there used to be a great blog that was only around for just a little bit, but where they would kind of track, uh, it was like um, Ain't It Harry news, and it would be like the news about Harry Knowles instead of the Ain't It Cool News stuff, and I loved it. That sounds awesome.
0: Well, And then you've also got the other thing with, with all these magazines. Now, this more so, it's going to go back to the cover argument I had. Let's move into adult magazines for the end of the show here. Is it just me, or does every issue of Penthouse, Hustler, and Playboy basically look the same at this point? Because I remember when Hustler and Penthouse, at least, had eye-catching covers. They had all these great, great covers that were not just a pretty girl in a pretty pose. And they don't do that anymore. I don't understand why. With porn on the internet, the only reason to buy an issue of Hustler anymore and i know how old man this makes me sound is for the articles that's why you buy <laughs> you don't buy Huff for the women cuz you can find four more graphic stuff stuff just googling any word in google images with safe search off and so i think it's it's kind of dumb for them to not go with the eye catching original cover designs anymore and and I, yes, I'm giving some crap to Hustler. I've worked for them, and I might be getting a regular gig with LFP. That shows that I'm not one of those sellouts. I'm willing to tell them when I think they're doing dumb.
1: Yeah, I personally, I can't really speak to it. I mean, unless it's a hardcore fetish magazine, I don't really look at the mainstream porn stuff.
2: Well, Mike, you've got high standards. I'll give you that. I think like adult magazines are in a whole separate category because like if I'm going to go to a, a steakhouse and have the best porterhouse I've ever had – Subpar bread on the table is not gonna ruin the experience for me. I don't think I don't think people are, are going out and buying Penthouse or Hustler or anything for the cover.
0: Hustler pays really well. The Hustler article I wrote, I made well over five hundred dollars for that single article. Are Hustler, you serious? Yes, Hustler LFP pays very well. That's why I'm very much looking forward to I'm in final negotiations to have a semi regular gig in, in print in Hustler. I'm really looking forward to that because that'll help a lot. My thing is, I just think the adult magazines are just meh at this point when it comes to the actual sex. For instance, I've got a subscription to Playboy. I don't even look at the girls in that anymore. That's what the internet is for. I look at that for the reporting. Is that sick of me? Have I entered Bizarro World,
1: Mike? I don't know, because the last few times I've bought Playboy magazines, they've been from, like, 72 and 75, and I was buying them for the articles. Well, but so back I,
0: then you had Hunter Thompson writing for him, and Stephen King yeah. and Ray Bradbury and William Gibson. God, yeah, you buy those old 70s issues.
1: Yeah, they were great stuff. So, I mean, if there are still articles that are worth it, you know that's great but i i don't know as far as the the whole um you know the content of the sex stuff i remember i really quit buying any kind of uh mainstream magazine when it, there were like the uh urination wars that were going on where it was like trying to get more and more extreme and i think it was penthouse no it was hustler started having pictorials of girls peeing and i was just like there's nothing Sexy about this at all Um, Even in the fetish magazines It's just like, yeah, I don't really need to see The water sports or the golden showers So I'm not really interested in seeing this in a mainstream mag? I don't know if they've gone away from that. I don't know if they're still trying to push the boundaries when it comes to what's acceptable in a mainstream porn magazine, which I know is kind of counterintuitive to say, but they really, uh, they lost me with that kind of stuff.
2: Well, I would definitely be all for magazines staying completely away from that unless it was part of an R. Kelly review.
0: <laughs> hey, 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 Charlie. Nin- yeah. 1998 called. They want their joke back. <laughs> 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 then what do you guys think about the the wide dearth of different kind of subject magazines you know you've got woodworking magazine and working mother magazine and black entrepreneur magazine and painting with feces magazine and hunting magazine how does a magazine devoted specifically to bow hunting find something to write about every single month
2: because ted nugent gets bored
1: fair enough mike i wish i knew i d- you know, I have actually looked through some of these, especially the painting with feces magazine, and I was just amazed that they could come up with content. But I'm, uh, it was really for me anyway. What I was looking at was more the ads and just seeing how these magazines can be a viable thing. And I don't know, are are they still doing that? And the thing that I wanted to kind of get to before we uh, sign off tonight is. Just the availability of magazines, I think, has just changed so much over the last few years. I mean, it used to be something where I could go into, you know, Barnes & Noble or Borders or some of these and just see tons and tons of magazines and just be amazed at the wide selection of all of these magazines. And now with the closing of Borders, with the closing of Tower Records, I mean, Tower Records was just this, you know, heaven on earth for people that were in the magazines and scenes. You know, you can go into Barnes & Noble, but those racks are shrinking, man. You're not seeing very much, and at least in my neck of the woods, we don't have something cool like an Atomic Books or Quimby's or something where you can go in and see not just the mainstream stuff, not just the the crazy porn stuff that we've been talking a little bit, but see the zines and see, you know, just the the whole, the, the wide spectrum that's available out there. And now it's like, <laughs> not, not only is it, you know, I don't have enough magazines to buy, or there aren't very many magazines out there to buy anymore, but I don't even have a place to buy them at. I don't know.
2: I mean, I think that humanity is a rich enough tapestry where you're get you're going to find a magazine for any activity that somebody is going to buy. And if the publishers can afford to keep putting it out just for this small niche market, then I say more power to them. What that reminded me of uh, was one of the very few interviews I've ever seen with Joel and Ethan Cohen. Uh, It was on the bare bones first issue edition of The Big Lebowski on DVD. Uh, Ethan Cohen was talking about how uh, Floor Coverings Weekly did a story on The Big Lebowski, and that was his favorite interview ever. And it wasn't until later where he asked himself the question, floor coverings need a weekly publication
0: (laughs) hey because that can really tie a room together man (laughs) and you know the i mean you don't want the carpet pissers to do that going back to mike's water sports thing so we've come full circle we've come full circle jerk how's that (laughs) where can we find mike
1: white Well, you can find me every week over at the Projection booth, -booth projection-booth.com. And, yeah, we will have a new issue of Cashiers to Cinemark coming out, and that will be available via impossiblefunky.com. Charlie McMullen?
2: Uh, You can find me on Geek Juice Radio, geekjuicemedia.com, and uh, Facebook. I spell my name weird, but it's worth trying.
0: No, it's not. You can find find me at 1201beyond.com. Contact me at 1201beyond at gmail.com. My weekly column, Sanity is Razor Thin, also at geekjuicemedia.com. And my monthly column, The Shadows of Pop Culture in Scene Magazine. See? I'm writing for an actual monthly magazine. So Awesome. You guys got anything you want to plug before the end of the show? Geek Juice Media,
2: um, check it out within the next uh, – I'll say – well, by the time this airs, I'll say within the next two weeks – Uh, Alex Jowski should be putting up my uh, my new comic strip. It's called Check Out My
1: Briefs. (laughs) Well, I'm very excited that we're going to have a special guest coming up on the projection booth, Mr. Josh Hadley himself, as we talk about Blade Runner. (laughs) As we talk about Blade Runner in our very special mind-twisting sci-fi week Where we've got uh, one episode about the 13th floor and World on a Wire And then we're talking Blade Runner in a very special, gosh, it's going to be like a mega episode Once this thing gets kind of all pieced together So we have yet to record our interview with Mr. William Sanderson But that will be happening pretty soon and we'll go in the episode and we got into some weird, deep,
0: philosophical Blade Runner territory there, didn't we?
1: Yeah, but yet there was still stuff that I wanted to talk about and totally forgot to do. I wanted to do like this whole comparison of Chandler and um, Spillane and then Dick and then also Fancher and Peoples and how they took each of these kind of things and, and went with it with the, uh, with the Blade Runner script. I'm going to
0: say goodnight.
2: Applicant